0: So can I get your name, what you do and where you do it, and then your favorite linguistics fact.
1: So my name is Daniel Ginsberg. I am the director of strategic initiatives at the American Anthropological Association, uh, and I am a sociolinguist, linguist anthropologist, and educator by training. I guess it's so hard to pick just one linguistics fact, but here's one that I love, thinking about a uh, gender inclusive language. That in English, for reasons that we know, it tends to focus so much on pronouns because pronouns are the words that come up most frequently that are most commonly, and you know, third person pronouns that are most commonly uh, have gender agreement. But other languages, as we know, do this differently. And one thing that stands out to me is thinking about in biblical Hebrew, the gender agreement goes throughout the verb and pronoun system, which means that if you look at the uh, Jewish liturgy, when you have prayers, God is always uh, takes masculine agreement. So the word for God might be grammatically masculine and take masculine agreement. There have been modern Hebrew speakers that have worked up an entire system of uh, gender neutral language, um, but also people you know, trying to think about gender inclusivity and thinking about Jewish ritual practice have come up with new ways of saying the prayers. So the traditional way of saying it, you might have something like, blessed are you, God, ruler masculine of the universe who makes us holy masculine agreement with your masculine agreement commandments, right? But there's another version of it that I've seen that says, blessed are you God, feminine word, Um, maybe spirit of life, who brings us together feminine agreement in your service, your feminine agreement service. Yeah, Wow. I should give level wow. Yeah.
0: That's very different. Yeah. So that, so you're saying that masculine, feminine, and Hebrew must be very, they're very, like, Yeah. Bungalow-ed. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to Tomato Tomato, your favorite podcast about linguistics and language. I am your host, Talia Sherman, I'm so happy to be here because this is an episode unlike any other episode I have done before, today I bring you not just the voice of one other linguist, but the voices of over 30 linguists, all of whom I interviewed at the Linguistic Society of America's annual meeting in New York City in early January. So let's just set the scene, shall we? I'm in the heart of Manhattan. I am at a Sheridan Hotel. I am in Times Square. And there are hundreds and hundreds of linguists just sort of milling about writing little notes, talking to each other, going to conference proceedings, going to see a talk, asking a question. They're very verbose. You'd be surprised. And I think, what a great opportunity. I can walk up to people at random intervals with my iPhone outstretched, voicemail app open, red play button press, and I can say, can I get your name, what you do and where you do it, and your favorite linguistics fact. And for the most part, people were so generous and so amenable to my request. And so in the following episode, you are going to hear from professors, from PhD students, postdocs, undergrads, and the rarest of the rare, the people who have left academia entirely and now work in what people consistently refer to as the quote-unquote industry. Several of the interviews you're about to hear were conducted alongside the legendary professor, Nicole Holiday, and posted to her TikTok page. So if you're interested in checking out a little visual video interface of these interviews, you can go check out Nicole Holiday on TikTok at Mixed and as for my favorite linguistics fact, you'll just have to wait until the end of the episode. But for now, let's dive into these absolutely awesome bits of information. Here are a bunch of really cool linguistics facts. Hi, I'm Nicole Holiday, uh, associate professor of linguistics at Pomona College. So, Talia, what do you want to ask me? What is your favorite linguistics fact, Professor Holiday? My favorite fact is uh, that American English listeners can tell the difference between white and black speakers based on hearing one vowel. Literally, they'll hear ah, and with over 90% accuracy, they can tell the difference because there is sociolinguistic variation uh, along lines of race in the United States.
2: Okay, my name is Heidi Harley. I do morphology, syntax, and lexical semantics at the University of Arizona. My favorite linguistics fact is that the English sound for what a cow makes made more sense in 1400. We used to say mo, which is what cows actually say. And now we think they say moo, and that's because of the great vowel shift
0: whoa end. and so in 20 years will we be saying now they say moo because we're going to be doing Mew. so much new fronting there you go boom <laughs> and, and how did we figure out the cows have the ma-, ma what is it what is it Moo. do they have ma because of we what, because cows, when we crot, made up the onomatopoeic word for their noise we thought it should sound like what they do but have we done like actual like spectrogram analysis oh man on cows
2: let's do a grand proposal right?
0: okay <laughs>
3: Okay, cool, thank you. Uh, My name's Kanan Bryce, I'm a phonologist and I work at University of Southern California. My current favorite linguistics fun fact is that uh, in most languages, the complexity of the syllable structure is correlated with frequency. So more frequent syllables are less complex and kids, therefore, have an easier time producing them. Um, however, in her paper in Language Acquisition, um, Gaia and colleagues in 2016 found that that's actually the opposite for Polish. So Polish kids have the most difficult syllables most frequently and they just have a really hard time with that. And I think that's, like, really cute and sad and interesting.
0: So is that kind of the phenomenon where kids have a hard time producing approximants and liquids in English? Like ra, wa, la?
3: Uh, I don't know about the exact segmental parallels with that in English, because this isn't my direct area, but I believe that whatever problems English kids have with those segments, Polish kids have got it so much worse, because okay. there are so many clusters of varying, falling, and rising, and dipping, and crazy sonority. So yeah, go look That's it up. That's
4: so cool! Okay, thank you! Yes, uh, I am Katal Light, and I uh, am actually an academic advisor at Loyola Uni- University, University Chicago which really allows me to bring things into student support, which is where I kind of find my priority, but I always end up coming back to linguistics. I think my favorite linguistics fact is demonstrative pronouns are inherently contrastive uh, and create really interesting problems in information structure that I would love to talk to people more about. What is a demonstrative pronoun and why is it inherently contrastive? What does it inherently contrastive mean? Well, it's, uh, it's things like that, or uh, uh, when you go to a de- demonstrative noun phrase, you have something like, you know, that cat. And um, it's different from other pronouns, like it, because it, you know, like points to things a little bit more directly but we find these cases where they seem to behave like other contrastive elements. Like if you have contrastive topicalization, sometimes you'll find demonstrative pronouns occurring there even though they don't seem contrastive. But the thing that I noticed, which I think really makes it stand out to me, is you can kind of see inherent stress on a demonstrative pronoun like that when you compare it to the that which is used in um, complementizers. So you would say, I love that you're my friend, but you would never say, did you see that cat? You can't unstress it. And so I think that that's one of the things that points to the fact that it's actually contrastive and it has to be emphasized even though it's just by default always that way.
5: Uh, So I'm Kirby Conrad, I work at Swarthmore College and I am doing socio-syntax and my favorite linguistics fact is, oh facts are really hard actually. Uh, are facts real? There's just not a lot of consensus in the field. <laughs> my favorite linguistics phenomenon is probably island extractions, just because I like the zap that they make in my brain. And I don't work on them at all because I want them to remain
0: magical to me. What's an island extraction?
5: Ooh, okay, so Joe will just gave me a really one- good one. He came up to me and he said, This isn't a Britney song. Who is it a song? Ooh. Doesn't that hurt?
0: <laughs> isn't that fun? So, like, whose song is it? Yeah. Who is it
5: a song? Yeah, because it's not a Britney song. It's a who song. Oh. Isn't that fun?
0: That's so interesting.
5: I love it. It feels great on my brain.
0: My name is Allison Kassar. Um, I do sociolinguistics and discourse analysis at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where I'm a PhD candidate. And my favorite (laughs) linguistics fact I don't know. I just love fun cognates. I love discovering that things
6: are words are related,
0: like water and vodka. How are water and vodka related?
6: They're cognates. The vod and vodka and the wat and water are cognate, are Indo-European cognates, and the k is a diminutive. Wow. So, so ka
0: is like little water. So vodka kind of means little water. Essentially, yeah. That's but, really cool. I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> wow. Thanks.
7: Yeah, so my name is Joshua Dees. I am a PhD student at the University of Illinois, and I study syntax and its interfaces with semantics and phonology. And my favorite uh, linguistics fact has to do with the language that I work on, which is Doluo. And Barack Obama's family is a part of the Luo tribe, which speaks DeLuo, so yeah, that's my, my fact. Okay, my name is Walt Wolfram. I'm a social linguist at North Carolina State University. And my favorite linguistic fact, it's curious because my favorite fact is so common to linguistics and so uncommon to the rest of the world. And that is the fact that every language variety is highly structured and systematic. And the world thinks of sort of like stigmatized dialects as sort of collections of errors. And for a linguist. That's like maintaining that the planet Earth is flat and it's so common and yet it's so distorted and misrepresented in the public world. So that, that's not a fact, but it's sort of like one of my greatest concerns as a myth about language that concerns my daily life.
8: My name is Gretchen McCulloch. I am the co-host of Lingthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics and the author of Because Internet. I do public-facing linguistics, lingcom, full-time. And my favorite linguistics fact, gosh, it's hard to pick because there are so many, but one that I find sort of blows people's minds in a few different directions is that American Sign Language is more closely related to French Sign Language than it is to British Sign Language unlike the spoken languages of, you know, the UK and the US and France. And it sort of gets people starting to think about sign languages being very different from each other and spoken languages. Uh, And I don't know any of those sign languages, but uh, it's sort of one small factoid to try to uh, put into people's minds.
0: And so how is it that French and English sign language are super closely related? So
8: American Sign Language was founded at one of the early American schools for the deaf, and they got some people from France over um, to help them do this. Um, but it was the first American school for the deaf was shortly after the American Revolution. So sort of understandably, they weren't getting people from the UK over to be like, hey, come help us to make a school for the deaf. Instead, they got a couple people over from uh, from France. And there are also, you know, it's also influenced by like Martha's Vineyard sign language and like other local sign languages but there there was this sort of French influence so for example the ASL manual alphabet is on one hand and so is the FSL manual alphabet um and the British sign language manual alphabet um as well as the Auslan um and New Zealand sign language national uh national alphabets are on two hands so like all the letters are sort of two-handed versus versus one-handed in space and like a bunch of the other signs are also different
4: yeah okay so I'm Dr. Kelly Elizabeth Wright. I am a postdoctoral researcher at Virginia Tech and my favorite linguistics back is that um, there is only one language that's spelled the same backwards and forwards.
9: What is it? What's the language? It's,
4: it's Malayalam. The palindromic. I never thought thing, of that. Oh my God. Yeah. Awesome. So
10: that's my favorite linguistics fact. There's only one. Hi. Yeah. So my name is Jordan Douglas-Tavani. I am a PhD candidate in linguistics at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And I do indigenous uh, linguistics in the Americas, revitalization, grammar, writing, and description. I'm a big fan of complicated morphology and syntax and um, historical linguistics and language change. Favorite linguistic fact is really just the language is such an encapsulation of culture culture it's culture put together and one of the things i love about this is talking about emotions and specifically how in english we don't really talk about emotions very well we have a couple of words but you know what we do do we gossip and so if you look at words for how people walk they all can convey emotion so oh he stormed out of the room. Well, clearly he's angry. Oh, uh, he danced out of the room. Perhaps he's happy. He has some energy. Uh, you know, she she sulked out of the room. She strode confidently. You know, we can. One of the ways that we can understand the English English and the people who speak it, or the culture that speaks it, is by looking at uh, how words are expressed. Um, so that's a fun fact.
6: Uh, I'm Rachel Steindelberdeen. Uh I work on language variation, particularly intonation and also Jewish languages and Jewish ways of speaking. And my fun linguistics fact is that dialect boundaries often correlate with other cultural boundaries. So if you're an Eastern European Jew, there might be some arguments in your family about whether or not filter fish should be sweet or savory and that's due to trade routes and like whether or not you're in an area of eastern europe that got cane sugar or beet sugar or not and that linguistic that boundary actually lines up with some linguistic boundaries between i think central and southeastern yiddish so you have this sweet savory foodways line that lines up with a linguistic distinction in the language that's awesome that's so cool <laughs> it's
0: like the different types of chorosid uh corresponding to savartic yeah Shrasek Shrasek Shus. Shus. Yes, yes, I think so. so
6: like food and cultural language all yeah yeah, 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 or maybe even in the U.S., the barbecue
0: lines, right? So like, yes. be like ketchup or vinegar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in North
6: Carolina, right, you got the Eastern and Western dialects and Eastern and Western barbecue. All right, um, so my name is Gabby Poplowski. I am a student and now a research assistant and sociolinguistics person at Pomona College, and my linguistics fact is um, about Arabic morphology, non concatenative morphology, which is present in Semitic languages as well, besides Arabic, but basically I love that you can take many roots that are usually three letters long, three consonants long, and then tack a specific set of patterns of vowels and diacritics onto them, which are not always annotated actually in written written language, and those can form very set patterns of meaning, such as the verb that you have created is now being done to someone, or the verb becomes a verbal noun, or it becomes the plural of that noun following the set pattern that does not really involve traditional prefix and suffixes that we see in western languages.
0: Okay so we're going to need like some kind of like
6: some-ish example. Right. Yes. So like Darasa for example. He studied. That's a very very basic example there. If you suddenly make the center longer you put A little marking for that shedda over it darasa that suddenly means he did that to someone. So he made someone study. He taught. There you go. Now you have teaching instead of. But that that's still related to the verb to study or like the same thing happens with alama or to know or he knew. If you put alama, that's he made someone know also. And this We're is like different teaching. from other
0: analytic languages? Or not analytic, agglutinating languages?
6: Um, this is slightly different from agglutination because agglutination involves tacking prefixes and suffixes and maybe infixes, but not in a pattern that just straight up you can put a, a like length in a, a letter and now it's suddenly something So that. Arabic is not an agglutinating? So Arabic is not, I don't think, considered agglutinative okay. like Turkish, which actually Turkish adopts a lot of words from Arabic, but it does very different things with them, like even to make them plural uses Turkish processes that are more agglutinative than um, Arabic plurals which are a whole other thing that involves rhyming and and making like almost song-like patterns out of words okay in the way that it's taught but yes that's so cool many things many things okay thank you
2: absolutely my name is Jamal Muwakil I'm a linguist I do that uh, right now at UCLA in an education department as a postdoctoral fellow my favorite linguistics fact is that um, all language, especially spoken language or language that is commonly used, has internal variation. And that, and, and that variation is natural to all language, which I appreciate. Variation
0: is a feature, not a bug. That's what Yeah. heard. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank
11: you. My name is Michelle DeGraff and I'm a professor of linguistics, and, and I'm, I'm the co-founder and co-director of this initiative called mit Haiti, where we produce resources in Haitian Creole in science and math and all, all the fields. And, um, and I do it at MIT. Um, and my favorite linguistic fact, well, there are so many of them, but there is one that I just spoke about with uh, the, our current president, Tony Woodbury, and it's about the fact that it's, it's an achievement of. of Patient Haitian Creole. So if you think of the word neg that we use for human being in Haiti, um, so the word neg actually comes from the French neg, right? And the French neg in many quarters is viewed as, a, as an N-word, it's an insult, it's a, it's a slur. But in Haiti, the word neg, which has emerged from neg, just means human being. Right. And to me, that's an amazing achievement because it shows the power of language to take something which is which was negative, because when the French brought the Africans in Haiti, they turned they they wanted to make them into lesser human beings, into chattel. Um, but yet, the, the, through language, they reaffirmed the humanity, and they took that very word that was supposed to be negative, and they made it into uh, an emblem of honor of humanity. So that's my one of my favorite linguistic facts. And, and, and the same could be said about the very name of the language. So Creole in Haiti doesn't have any of the negative um, correlates that we find in linguistics, for example. In Haiti, the word Creole in Creole means... It's a language, in fact, we have proverbs like Creole parler, Creole comprendre, which means that if you're in Haiti and you want to be understood, you better speak Creole. There's another one which I like a lot, which is Creole, c'est la racine. Francais, c'est la acheter. It means Creole is our root language and French is the bought language. It the that you buy. You know, so you can imagine yeah. all the Marxist socioeconomic um, implications with that with that proverb. So those are... Two of my linguistic facts that I love a lot about Haitian Creole.
0: And it goes to show that Creole is its own exactly. beautiful, complex language, it, it not necessarily ab, ab, a simplified ab, form. Of, ab,
11: yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So, absolutely. So, yeah. so there are lots of other um, favorite linguistic facts, but since you asked me for one, I give you two. Okay. So, <laughs> me...
0: Thank you so much.
11: My pleasure, Talia.
0: Um, my name is Alia Bullen.
12: I study at Swarthmore College. I study cognitive science. So When measuring brain waves on an EEG scanner, it takes 600 seconds to notice when a participant is reanalyzing a sentence. So pretty much at the moment that something in the sentence is confusing, like embedded clauses or some mismatch between
0: who's speaking and what was being said, you can notice that change after 600 seconds on the scanner. Wow. And then that helps you determine... Like a lot of things, so that helps you determine sort of what is actually hard to process syntactically. That helps you determine. Does that help you determine like what words are hard to process, or is it mainly syntactic? Um, mainly syntactic changes. But if you are trying to,
12: for instance, generate sentences in English and determine if this is something that someone would naturally produce, uh, this would be a good way to check it. See if there's that that peak at 600 seconds.
0: Can I get your name, what you do, where you do it, and then your favorite linguistics fact? Sure.
13: My name is Paul Reed. I'm an associate professor of phonetics and phonology at the University of Alabama. And my favorite linguistics fact is that the word for tea and chai comes from the same root. One went by land, one went by sea.
0: And so does that mean that when you're saying chai tea you're really just saying tea T-t, tea? Yes. Exactly. Or
13: like when you someone says like um, the ye old shop the ye is a, a way of spelling the in old in middle English. So if you say the ye old you're saying the the old ice cream shop.
0: But it's for some reason I'm not I'm not getting it. It's not giving noun reduplication. It's not giving intensive noun reduplication no, for it's whatever not. reason. No it is not. So or, or like
13: the the like you know the La Bellevue or something like that, where they oh, have yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. Dupl- duplication of the of the demonstrative of the uh, of the article.
0: So, has it become contrastive? Could you argue that it's become contrastive, or is it just no, that I think no, it's just
13: there. It's, it's just, just, just... It's people, just a lack of understanding about the changing in orthography.
0: That's so cool. Yeah, it yeah,
14: is
13: pretty. Cool.
0: Okay, yeah. thank you. Wow. I'm Alex Johnston. I'm a professor of sociolinguistics at Georgetown University. And one of my favorite linguistics facts is that there is only a bare millisecond of difference that it takes between somebody in conversation with somebody else thinking that you have nothing to say at all or talking over somebody. And this difference in turn taking is all relative. It's not absolute. So if you think that you talk over people all the time, just talk with somebody else who has a different length of pause between turns and you'll have a totally different experience. Maybe you'll be overrun by somebody else or shall we call it cooperative overlapping.
6: (gasps) Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you.
15: So I am Brad Davidson. I am the director of medical anthropology at a company called Havas Health and You, uh, and I also teach at the School of Visual Arts in the Masters in Branding program. I'm standing with my advisor Penny. So I'm gonna I'm gonna think of a linguistic fact that that she taught me. I mean, I think um, that girls uh, in early and middle and late adolescence, both lead and lag boys has always stuck with me. Right, That is the one fact from your study that I've never forgotten. So there you go. They both lead and lag change. And then it's been endless discussions about why since then. So So women lead linguistic change. Uh, Young women in high school seem to be more linguistically facile. The guys just smack each other and the girls have to present themselves. Wasn't that what you taught, more or less? is not that one of the no, theories?
2: but it's, it's cute. <laughs> but
15: anyway, I, we don't know why, but uh, I do remember Penny saying that when you look like toyping, I remember that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that like you either did it tons or not, and the guys were sort of in the middle.
2: And not only
4: that, the, the girl who did the most toyping also had the highest rate of negative Concord. She led everybody. And explain what negative Concord is? What people call double negatives. Okay. Ain't
15: no problem (laughs) toyping.
0: Look at you. (laughs) And is that just because young women are using language to a greater degree to advance their social... You're
15: literally asking me when the person who authored the study is standing next to me. I (laughs) don't know why. She's
4: the one yearning. (laughs) To advance their social... That's a little too... Agentive, I think. Okay.
5: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah.
15: I I think... I
5: mean, women... Girls, particularly, do a lot of style. It's yeah. just stylistic activity. It's
15: not. I think that's where we landed, right? It's part of personal style. I talked to my daughter about it a lot. She's 17, and I was like, I watch her try on different styles differently than my boys did, for sure. So,
14: I'm Cece
8: Cutler. I'm a sociolinguist. Uh, I'm at the CUNY Graduate Center here in New York City. And one of my favorite linguistic facts is uh, has to do with the field of onomastics. I love the fact that names actually mean things. Um, and so I'm really fascinated by um, learning, for example, that the, the easy at the end of last names in Spanish, like González, is actually a patronym, and it means son of. Um, and also, my name, Cecilia, um, is, is from Latin, and it means blind.
0: <laughs> wow.
6: Wow. wow! Amazing! Like ciego in Spanish. Yeah, yeah.
8: Like a Sicilian snake is a blind snake that lives
5: underground and can't see. So Cecil, for Latin, uh, has to do with blindness.
14: Sure, my name is Valerie Friedland. I'm a professor of sociolinguistics at the University of Nevada, Reno. I'm also the author of Like Literally Dude. And I would say there's so many to choose from, but one of my favorite linguistic facts is that when we had the Anglo-Norman invasion, not only did we get a different government by those that spoke French, we also got different words for the animals we eat and the animals we hang out with in the pastures. And that's because the English words were typically the words that we use for the animals that we see when we drive by a farm. And the French words were the animals, once they were dead on a serving platter, and that's because the English speakers were the peasants and the French people were the ones they served the food to. So that's why we have things like cow and buff and chicken and poulet and poultry, because those are the word differences between the lowly English and the fancy French.
0: Whoa! Thank you so much! Absolutely! That's so cool! Absolutely.
3: Okay, my name is Mike Stern. I'm, what I do, I'm a grad student at Yale
0: I in linguistics on, in
3: linguistics, yeah I yeah, work yeah. on like articulation and speech motor control and I don't know if this is my favorite fact but it's the first one I thought of which is the McGurk effect so this is how like visual information affects speech perception so like if you see someone producing a "ba" sound but you hear acoustically like a guh sound you'll actually perceive a duh sound so you kind of like integrate those two kinds of information and, like, and why is it difference.
0: that the combo like the 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 visual cue of "ba," but the phonetic cue, uh, but the auditory cue of ga meets in the middle to duh. Is D like the, the Actually, point, that's a or? good
3: question. Yeah, I don't know what the, so maybe like F2 is doing something. So like you're, you're hearing like the F2 related to ga, but you're also are getting this visual information telling you it's ba. So, I mean, so, like, so, yes, maybe acoustically there's some kind of...
0: Yeah, because I'm thinking, like, buh being, like, bilabial voiced stop, and then guh being, like, voiced velar stop, Mm -hmm. meeting in the middle to duh, which is your voiced alveolar stop. All stops, but you're literally meeting in the middle between bilabial and velar. The middle would be
3: alveolar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. spatially it is, like,
0: in the middle. In the middle. That's so cool. Thanks! No problem. Hi, so can I get your name, what yeah. you do, and where you do it, Absolutely. and then your favorite linguistics
12: fact. <laughs> Absolutely. So my name is Captain Russell, or Katie. Um, I'm in my fourth year of the PhD program at UC Berkeley in linguistics, um, and one of my favorite linguistics fun facts is that most of the world's languages have tone, actually, which is something that people are always surprised by whenever I tell them. Um, people just associate tone with like a very specific part of the world, but turns out actually most of the world's languages have tone. That's fun.
0: But English doesn't, right? English does not. us <laughs> so, like, examples of like, what tone is, and then also yeah. have, what, what languages have tone, yeah. Totally.
12: So tone is um, manipulating the pitch of your voice um, to have some kind of meaning. Um, so in lots of East Asian languages, like Chinese, um, the way that you do this is um, different lexical items, so different words, like horse versus mother is a very famous example, um, have different tones, so different um, ways of moving the pitch of your voice. So I don't speak Chinese, but it's something like ma versus ma. Um, so different kind of pitch contours, um, and those would give you very different meanings. People always have to be very careful not to mix up horse and mother, for example. You can get a lot of trouble. Um, and then I work in West Africa where um, almost all of the languages of Africa have tone, actually, which is also something that people do not know. Um, But it's used for a very different purpose. So in Africa, for the most part, um, tone is used for grammatical purposes. So one language that I work on is called Gébie. It's spoken by about 7,000 people in southwestern Côte d'Ivoire. And the way that you conjugate verbs, you don't do anything like in Spanish, you would change the ending, something like that. In this language, you just change the tone. And that is how you make all the different conjugations. So, for example, if you want to say I ate, you would say "eli." and if you say I eat, it's so a like present tense, it's eli, So you just change the tone of the verb and that gives you a totally different meaning. And to say, I didn't eat, you say a-ly. Um So again, just changing the pitch of your voice and that gives you a completely different meaning. And that's something that people often are like, Minds are blown by that because they didn't realize that you could do such things with language, but um,
0: yeah. That's, that's so really cool, whereas if English, if I said, like, coffee versus coffee, right. that does nothing.
12: Yeah, it's totally. Nothing. Like, you might have different pragmatic meanings. Like, people might interpret it slightly differently based on the context and the discourse, but you're not going to have completely different meanings, like different tenses or different words altogether like you would in these languages. Wow, so thank, thank you
6: so back. much.
2: Absolutely. Thanks.
7: Totally. <laughs> I'm Bruno. I do
10: corpus phonology at Brown. My favorite linguistics fact is that apron used to be napron with an N, but then it was misparsed as N-apron, so now people just say apron. So that's a neat example of language change. When did that change
0: come about? Like, do you know what century?
10: Off the top of my head, I don't, uh, but it was, uh, I guess, three or four centuries ago at least.
12: Sure. Um, my name is Alexa Little. I am a learning experience designer at Veeam Software. Um, and my favorite linguistics fact is that there are over 7,000 languages spoken worldwide.
0: Wow. And that number is up, down from the past? What's happening with like language... Development? Are more languages forming? Are they dying out? What's happening? So, there's a
12: really important effort right now that's happening called language reclamation, which is that indigenous communities are fighting colonialism by perpetuating languages in their own communities.
0: Yes, stop to that. All right, thank you so much. Mm-hmm
14: all right i am emily m bender and i'm a professor of linguistics at the university of washington and this weekend my favorite linguistics fact is that the american dialect society chose the phrase stochastic parrot as its ai-related word of the year and why is that so important to you emily bender <laughs> it's important to me personally because i coined that phrase um, in the context of a paper called on the dangers of stochastic parrots can language models be too big parrot emoji, being part of the title, um, that I published with uh, some co-authors, uh, Timnit Gibru, Margaret Mitchell, and Angelina oh. Millen Major in April of 2021, um, where we're talking about why it is that large language models don't actually understand. They don't understand. They're not the same as us. They are not the same as us. Nope. They are corpus models. They model the distribution of words and text so they can come up with plausible sounding continuations to whatever string you put in. And that's it. If it seems to make sense, it's because you're making sense of it.
2: Hi, my name is Ben Zimmer. I'm the language columnist for The Wall Street Journal. My linguistic fun fact is a realization I had when I was an undergrad studying Indonesian, the standard variety of Malay. That's the national language of Indonesia. When I was learning basic vocabulary, I learned that in Indonesian, the word for name is Nama and the word for same is Sama. And I wondered why these words were so similar to their English equivalents when Indonesian is in the Austronesian language family and English, of course, is Indo-European. At first, I thought these words might be borrowed from Dutch since the Dutch colonized the East Indies before Indonesia got its independence. But it turns out these words Nama and Sama are actually from another Indo-European language and that is Sanskrit because for centuries there were uh, Hindu and Buddhist empires in what is now Indonesia, and Sanskrit had a big influence because of that on Malay and other languages of the region. And that whole history really fascinated me, and I ended up studying more more about that in grad school. So that's my fun fact.
10: Um, yeah, I'm Aidan Malinowski. I am a PhD candidate at the CUNY Graduate Center and an instructor in the linguistics program at Lehman College. And I don't know if this is my favorite linguistics fact, but it's a fun one. The word um, boondocks comes from the Tagalog word "boondok," which means hill or mountain.
9: So my name is John Stevenson. I'm at University of York doing a PhD in linguistics. Uh, fact is you have changes that happen in language. Some of them uh, what's known as off the shelf and some of them are known as under the counter. So you have Changes that people can just grab easily. So, if you want to be associated with a certain area, if you say, want to be seen as or heard as from Liverpool, then you pick up a certain fact, a certain fact about the way people speak there, and you can use that. You pick it off the shelf, right? So, in Liverpool, people say, I'm going to the pub, so they drop the proposition. So in, instead of I'm going to the pub, they say I'm going to the pub. So if you're not from Liverpool exactly, but you're nearby Liverpool, you pick that up and, you, and people start using that. So you can see that being used in the vicinity of Liverpool. Liverpudlians don't like it. If you're from the core area of Liverpool, those kind of people who pretend are known as woollybacks or plastic scousers, And other features, under-the-counter features, are features that are core to the to, to a speech area. So in Liverpool, actually people, the whole area around Liverpool, people will say, for instance, someone gave me, like Sally gave me a present, um, and, they, and someone might respond, oh, she gave it you, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
9: Like everywhere around Liverpool, Manchester, they'll say, oh, she gave it you, right? In Liverpool, they actually say I gave you it, so they do the reverse order. But no one, no one's aware of that, right? So if you're a plastic scouser, you don't know that that's what what people in Liverpool do. People in Liverpool don't even know they do that and that it's different, right? So it's kind of, it's it's kind of what makes you a true speaker of a place. Right?
0: What features it, are above our threshold of metalinguistic awareness, right. and what features yeah. are what below? What features are salient? Yeah.
10: Yeah my name is Byron Ahn. I uh, do linguistics at Princeton University. I do two branches of things. I do syntax, mainly pronouns, and prosody, mainly intonation. And my favorite linguistic fact has to do with this thing that happens in English when sometimes you can say at least American English. You can say things like, "Um, is it raining out there? You could say probably, but you could also say, is it raining out there? Probably. And when you say probably, it means something like I agree that it seems likely, but I also think that I don't have certainty in the same way that you don't have certainty.
0: So are you talking about the semantics of intonation and prosody?
10: I do a lot of work on the (laughs) semantics of intonation and prosody. That's sort of like one of my things these days. I have a big NSF grant with some uh, people at um, uh, MIT, Simmons University, uh, in Boston University, and we're doing stuff about, about the semantics of intonation.
0: And now, as promised, my favorite linguistics fact. If you're new here, allow me to introduce myself. I'm Talia Sherman. I'm an undergrad at Brown University. I study linguistics. And my favorite linguistics fact is the history of the word pudenda. That's P-U-D-E-N-D-A. The word pudenda in English means, and I quote, external genitals, comma, especially a woman's, end quote. But where does this word come from? Well, it comes from Latin, like a lot of words in English. It, It comes from the Latin verb pudere, which means to be ashamed of, and the Latin word pudenda, which means parts to be ashamed of. So parts to be ashamed of in Latin becomes women's genitals in English. And that's a pretty telling fact, if you ask me. Not just in reference to our culture of misogyny, etc., etc., but how did I come upon this fact? How did I come upon the word pudenda, which, if you're anything like me, you probably haven't heard before. Well, by reading a book by John Updike, of course. (laughs) I was reading Couples, and I come across the usage of a phrase, luxuriant pudenda. This is in a passage where a man is looking at his wife's body, and he mentions her, quote, luxuriant pudenda. And then it was just a matter of a quick Google search, and the realization that the author is, in fact, very much alive, because, as we know, Updike reeked of misogyny, and still, quite frankly, reeks to this day of misogyny as his essence inevitably lives on in literature. But what I like about this observation is that it led me to think about a number of different things. Number one, luxuriant Pudenda sounds a little bit like an oxymoron to me, but even if it isn't, I think it's really interesting to talk about how, or more importantly, why, someone would describe their wife, someone they ostensibly care for's body, as luxuriant, but also shameful at the same time. Then, even more crazily, if you look further down the passage, it ends with this character, this man, describing his wife's body from her ankles to her wrists to her luxuriant pudenda to her throat, all these things. But he sums up all his observations by saying that she, quote, like Eve on a portal, crouched in shame. Whoa, okay, I just thought that was great writing to begin with. But she's crouching in shame, like Eve, on a portal. And and whether or not we agree, whether or not we agree that Eve ever crouched in shame on a portal after committing the first sin, let's just say, for the sake of this conversation and this analysis, that yes, Eve was in shame on a portal. And like Eve, this character crouches in shame on a portal could be a metaphor for a portal out of their relationship, Out of this marriage, we don't know, but why is she crouching in shame? Is it the shame of having a part to be ashamed of? Is it the shame of being a woman? Is it the shame of the fact that this marriage is falling apart? What's going on here that she's crouching in shame but also has this luxuriant part to be ashamed of? These are questions that spin through my head and I think about them all the time. And I really could go on and on. I could talk about how Updike avoids repetition or anaphora by not saying something earlier in the passage like her quote unquote luxuriant part to be ashamed of. If you just look up the direct definition of the word pudenda, you think, oh, women's genitals, great, and then move on. But if you know the history of the word, then you can compare that phrase to the last sentence of the paragraph where she's crouching in shame. And then suddenly you have this repetition that's not a phonologic repetition, but some sort of call back to a different time in history, to a different word, to a different language altogether. Shame is not present twice in this paragraph. It's only present if we understand the history of the word. So when we understand the history of the word, then suddenly shame becomes a motif. There are many conclusions that we can draw from this one observation, but allow me to make perhaps the broadest conclusion of them all. The history of the word matters for our interpretation of this literature. Understanding a history of language, understanding syntax, understanding morphology, understanding how a root of a verb then combines to make a noun, and then that noun gets imported into another language and undergoes a process of semantic pejoration. All this matters. In our process of analyzing literature, to our process of understanding the text that a large language model might spit out at us, to just every day when we're in conversation, understanding what the other person is saying to us. An understanding of language matters. And with that, I want to say thank you so much for listening to Tomato Tomato. I have been your host, Talia Sherman, and those were the voices of over 30 different linguists, all of whom are doing incredible work out there in the world. Go look them up. Go send them an email. Tell them how much you love them. They are awesome. And I will speak to you next time.
2: Bye.